Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Ryan Moffitt continues our series in 1 John, where he talks about the three enemies of the soul. Let's listen. Let's listen to the Word of God from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for being here. Go ahead and grab a seat. And good morning. I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad you're here this morning. If you're newer amongst us, Right after the service, we have a welcome table. We want to make sure we say hello, get to know you, and have a gift for you. And it's a, it's a good gift. It's, it's legit. It's connected to coffee. You're going to want to get in on that gift. Steve and I have been having a blast looking at this book of 1 John with the church. And the language that Steve's used the last few messages is strong language of objective reality, Something has happened. God has acted definitively through his son, Jesus. And the apostle John is so overwhelmed by this Jesus, the one he says in 1 John chapter 1, he says, we saw with our eyes, we touched with our hands, we heard with our ears all everything concerning the word of life. And this objective reality John is arguing over and over again through his letter is, is that God has done something and it has massive impact for how our lives should look doctrinally, morally, and relationally. And he circles those things over and over and over again. I don't know if any of you guys have read the author uh, Francis Schaeffer. Has anyone read Francis Schaeffer? Any? any? Okay, uh, if you were a hippie in the 70s, Steve loved him. Um, Francis was ahead of his times, and, and I'm rereading Francis Schaeffer right now. Uh, actually, for me, it's a first read, but I'm amazed listening to Francis Schaeffer. He's writing this stuff 50 years ago, but I want you to hear, because I, I think what Francis Schaeffer is saying in this quote is actually a good summary of this epistle of John. He says this. He says, to be really Bible-believing Christians... We need to practice simultaneously at each step of the way we, two biblical principles, okay? So at each step of the way, two things got to be working that are going to seem antithetical. It's going to seem paradoxical, but these two things have to be playing together. Number one is that the principle of that of the purity of the visible church. Scripture commands that we must do more than just talk about the purity of the visible church. We must actually practice it even when it is costly. So he's saying the church as God's people, following the pure Lamb of God, 
And his purity should become our purity. And we should actually, as a church, we should be distinct. We should be different than the world. He says, but the, the second principle that should be at work in the church is that of an observable love among all true Christians. In the flesh, we can stress purity without love. That's pharisaical. Or we can stress love without purity. We cannot stress both, or or we cannot stress both simultaneously. To do, we must look moment by moment to the work of Christ and to the Holy Spirit. Without that, a stress on purity becomes hard, proud, and legalistic. Likewise, with it, without it, a stress on love becomes sheer compromise. Spiritually, spirituality begins to have real meaning in our lives as we begin to exhibit simultaneously the holiness of God and the love of God. We never do this perfectly, but we must look to the living Christ to help to do it truly. And so Schaefer says to the church, we actually should be distinct and not compromise our doctrine. And simultaneously, we should be a church loving one another and loving the community around us. And let me just say, this is a challenging moment in our cultural history because there are so many nuances of how this flushes out. There are so many ideologies of today that we've got to be thoughtful And we've got to be innocent as doves, but we must, as Jesus said, simultaneously be shrewd as serpents. And so John's wanting to see this church unified, relationally healthy. He's going to say later on in this chapter next week and the following weeks, he's going to say things like, if we say we know God, but we don't love one another, we do not know God. We don't practice the truth. Our relationships matter, okay? So we got two sections uh, of scripture we're going to work through this morning. And the first one is in chapter uh, 2, verses 12 to 14. I'm going to call this John's pep talk. And then we're going to look at verses 15 to 17. So let's start in that, in that section. Uh, it, it's probably indented in your Bible. It's, it's a little bit of a, a poem that John's going to riff off of. And he's going to write to three, uh, three groups of people. Do you guys see in verse 12, he's going to write to what group? Little children. Verse 13, he's going to write to who? And 13b, he's going to write to who? Young men, okay? And he's got a, he's got a word for each one of these groups of people. Now, um, there's a lot of debate on whether or not John's actually writing, like, to little children. Like, did he write, like, a children's lesson, hoping that it would get, you know, just, just I can't even get the word right now passed around at the children's church, right? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think what John is doing is he's, he's actually saying within a church, there are people at different spiritual maturities. And he's going to write something to the kids, the spiritual kids. He's going to write something to the spiritual teenagers. And he's going to write a definitive word to the spiritual fathers, Okay? And I want you to see what John does because it actually is informative. There's a pastoral and there's a discipleship principle in here that I want us to all see. 
This is, a, this is John's pep talk, okay? So John's had all of this doctrine. He's, he's excited about this truth of Jesus. He's excited about this reality that, that actually this objective truth has happened, and John wants the church to be shaped. So he says this. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now just think with me for a second. Why do you think John wants the spiritual children to be reminded of their forgiveness? What happens cognitively? Anyone, any parents out there with little children? Any grandparents out there with little grandchildren? Um, what do little children need? They need reminders. And notice they're forgiven. Why? For whose sake? For his namesake. In the life of a five-year-old, who are they mainly thinking about? I'm forgiven. Why? Because I'm awesome. Why? Because I shared my Tonka truck with that jerk over there. Right? You know what I mean? So he's taking the little children and he's saying, your salvation, here's some really good news. Number one, the word you need is assurance. If you're a babe in the gospel, you know what you need to be reminded of this morning? Your sins are forgiven, and you know why they're forgiven? Sometimes we think, oh, that person's forgiven. Their repentance was really good. Oh, they felt really bad. They're probably forgiven. Oh, he said sorry the most. He's no, that's actually not why we're forgiven. We're forgiven for the sake of God's name. And so our salvation doesn't rest on our ability to repent better than the guy down the, the road. My repentance is way better than his repentance. The minute you're comparing repentance, you're probably not in repentance. There's a principle for you. And so he says to these children, your sins are forgiven. Little kids need assurance and they need a worldview that's bigger than them. But the second group he writes to is he says, I write to you fathers, this is in verse 13 and in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's kind of a weird statement for the spiritual grandparents. Why do they need to be reminded of who is from the beginning? Here's what I think is happening. What the grandparents and the church need, you know what they need? They need continuity, they need story, and they need a life bigger than the one that their life is about to wrap up. And he's saying, you know what you guys need, actually? You need perseverance to continue. You know the whole story. Don't forget it. I know it doesn't look like this thing called church, this thing called fellowship, this thing called, whether it's small group, this thing called community. It doesn't look like it's having a strong effect. But you know the story from the beginning. Stick with it. You need perseverance. But the third group he writes to is spiritual teenagers. Anyone raising teenagers? We'll pray for you, okay? <laughs> spiritual teenagers. You know what you get with spiritual teenagers, right? A lot of passion, a lot of energy, and like minimal wisdom. They're just going, right? And look what he says to these, these young men. He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. What do young men need? They need to be told, you can do it. I was talking to a friend of mine this last week. Uh, I don't know if he's here. John, uh, John Weaver. You've probably seen John and Jordy. Um, she's got, she might be having a baby right now. I don't know if you saw her last week. I was afraid to touch her. I thought it might, you know. I mean, it was like, the baby's right there. Okay. And I was talking to him about parenting. We were talking about raising boys. He's got uh, two boys, one on the way. And he's trying to figure out, how do, I, how do I raise strong young men in a world and in an age where the culture doesn't want to help my boys be boys and wants to actually take the boy out of them? What do I do? And we were just talking, and he, we were talking about doing hard things and, and all this stuff, and he says, you know, one of the best things for my boys has been swimming lessons. I was like, really? Why is that? He goes, well, this lady I take him to, she doesn't like excuses. And I go, really? Tell me about that. He's like, well, Josiah's three and a half. And Josiah gets in the pool, and he's really scared. And he, he wants me, wants mom. And uh, this lady, she's, he's like, she's old school, man. He's like, no, Josiah, you're coming with me, and we're going to the deep end. No, uh, Josiah, stop whining. You're coming with me to the deep end. And John was like, as a dad, I was like, I don't know what to do with this, right? And she said the definitive moment it changed. Teacher locked eyes with Josiah looked at him and said, Josiah, you are strong. And he swam to the deep end. And John just like in tears as a dad. He's like, I love this woman. We need more old school women. God bless her, right? We have a culture that wants to tell our young men, you are weak. You are weak. All you'll ever be is weak. You're a loser. So just live your, live your identity. What, what identity? Loser. But the word of God comes to these young men and says, you are strong and you have overcome the evil one. Don't you want to be a part of a generation where we see our young men strong and overcoming the evil one? Friends, I am burdened for our young men. I work with a, a group of dads in the church. Uh, you'll see us here on Fridays. It's called DDD. Very simple title. Dads, Dudes, and Donuts. <laughs> and we're literally just getting together every Friday. 15 young men, 5th and 6th, 7th grade boys, 10, 12 dads, and we're just investing in these guys because they live in a culture where they're being actually told it's bad to be a boy. It's bad to be strong. It's bad to have power. Can power go bad? Yes. But what is power? It's the ability to affect change. Can that be used for good? Yes. So he says to this culture, and he says to these young men, you are strong and you have actually overcome the evil one. So I just want to show you this uh, on a chart real quick. This is kind of what the discipleship process looks like. Um, is it up there? No, I don't know. Do we, Beth, do we have it or not? You can thumbs down me too because I didn't check with you before the uh, service. That's totally on me. Oh, good. You, Beth, Beth Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so this is kind of what this looks like, right? Um, 
over here, they're spiritually dead. What do they need? They must be born again, right? But then they, they come to Christ, and what does the infant need? They need guidance. They need a lot of encouragement. They need to be told, like, no, we're not going to run through the road, even though you feel like that's a good idea. We're not going to do that. What does the spiritual child need? They need to get their mind off themselves. They're self-focused. It's me, mine, and me, myself, and I, right? And then young adult, they get to kingdom-focused, which is better than self-focused, but they're idealistic. This is where a lot, this, this right here, this spiritual young adult, this is where I see a lot of deconstruction. Here, because here's what happens. They start out idealistic. I'm going to change the world. Okay, this is expectations. Um, this is the reality of ministry. This is disappointment. Okay? You get to 42, you know what I think? I'm not, I'm not thinking, I'm going to change the world. I'm like, I hope I can change myself a little bit. You kind of bring the expectation down a little bit, right? Okay. Okay, so this is kingdom focused, but then you get to a spiritual parent and you start actually becoming a disciple maker. You stop needing maybe every church program and you're out on mission. You're touching lives. You're pursuing people, okay? And then you become that spiritual grandparent and you become a dis- uh, uh, um, you're making disciple makers. You're reproducing, okay? This is part of what we talk about in the discipleship class. So there's a preview and a commercial and that was sponsored by Jeff Sanders. Okay, here we go. Verse 15, this is the second section. Paul says to the young men, You've, you're strong. You've overcome the evil one. Now we're gonna get a warning and I want you to see the logic of the warning. I want you to see the complexities of the warning and I want you to see the motivation of the warning, okay? He says this to the, this church, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as we look at this section, I want you to be thinking about a few questions. How should we be thinking about how we interact with the world? There's two edges of this that I see in the Christian life and I see in the church today. Uh, The first edge is, I'm going to call it the pharisaical legalistic edge. And what that edge does is it looks at the world and only critiques it. Is it easy to critique our cultural moment, friends? It's so simple. There's so much nonsense. It's really easy to do. So this edge is only looking at the world and only critiquing. I call it lobbing truth bombs from the church parking lot. Like we all look around and go, aren't we so glad we're not like those people? That does, that's, that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of Jesus, okay? But the other edge over here that I see, I call it the assimilation or over-contextualization trap, where we just assimilate with the world. We become like the world. We talk like them, look like them, spend like them, 
fight like them, respond like them. And then we're surprised when no one wants to join the club. And they're like, I was doing just fine not being a part of something that looks just like what I'm already a part of. And we mirror it. And so be thinking about, as we look at this part of this text, what does it look like to interact with the world? How should we think about the world as the people of God? Here's the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So the logic goes like this. Be careful what you choose to love. Your heart can only contain so much. Proverbs 4.23 says this. Above all else, follow your heart. No, that's the Disney version. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? It is the what? Wellspring. So think with me about that picture, that metaphor of a well for a second. Is it infinite in its capacity or is it limited? A well has a limited capacity. Our hearts are the same way, actually. They, act, they can't simultaneously love two things that are in opposition to one another. There will always be a lead love in our lives. So the logic goes like this. The love of the world is actually incongruent with the love of the Father. If the love of the world is in you, John says, it pushes out not just our response of the love of the Father, it actually pushes out our ability to experience the love of the Father. And the love of the Father is really, really good. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind, John? What, what, what exactly were you referring to? This kind, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so most of the, of the triangulation of our own hearts, most of the confusion of our own emotion and our own affection and our own love, friends, it is tapped into a confusion of gospel identity. We haven't received the love of the Father. And if you receive the love of the Father, you know what looks really, really unappetizing? The love of the world. Why? Because you've seen the real thing. I always use food metaphors, but I remember thinking at one point in my life, this is a, a confession, I used to think frozen chicken nuggets were good. Hi, I'm Ryan. I got a problem. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Got a confession. And then I met this awesome woman named Michelle. And she changed my life, my wardrobe, and my palate. <laughs> now I sip teas, and she's like, are you picking up the cardamom? And I was like, I was feeling the jasmine pearl, but I don't know. And so many of us, we live with just, we're on the lowest rung, friends, because all we know is the love of the world. But when you know the love of the Father, we're going to sing a hymn at the end today during communion. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will, what? In the light of his glory and grace. So Jesus put it this way as it relates to our hearts. No one can serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. James puts it this way. Friendship with the world is enmity. It's hostility towards God. The prophet Ezekiel put it this way, that the people of Israel, you guys took idols into your hearts. So what happens when God changes our lives, when his grace comes, is that it changes our loves. The Puritans put it this way, we've been seized by the power of a great affection. One of my favorite stories is the story of St. Augustine. (laughs) Augustine was a Interesting fellow, tried everything, philosophy, tried morality, really tried hard on immorality. That was probably his most famous chapter with sexual perversion. And nothing seemed to work for Augustine. He was influenced by a lot of different forces that led him to reading Romans, where God met him as he read scripture. And as he started making sense of his life, He says this in his book, uh, this is his book, Christian Doctrine. I want to read you this quote. He says, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things to love things. That is to say, in the right order, okay? So that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what should be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. That's a really, really old school Christian doctrine way of saying Augustine found the secret of life was to have rightly ordered loves. If you love something that's should be here, and you make it ultimate, not only do you not experience that, you don't experience the love of the Father the way you could. I'm gonna give you an example. I'm gonna give you four truths of my loves last Saturday. (laughs) Four truths, help me rank these. I gotta take my son to the um, Oregon State Beaver USC game, I was there, and I'm still processing the pain. So here's four loves. Number one, God. Number two, great food, not chicken nuggets, and drinks. Number three, Oregon State Beaver football. Number four, my son, and getting to listen to manhood podcasts with him in the car. If I put food and drink above Brennan and God and other, guess what I'm doing the whole time I'm driving in the car? Do you think I'm engaged in the conversation as we're talking about courage? I'm like, I'm giving courage. I'm just giving it the old college try because really what's leading me is what? I need Chipotle. I need Chipotle. I need Chipotle. It's the ordering of those loves. That makes me go and appreciate the game. It's the ordering of the loves that makes me sit there. And friends, I'm telling you, I think as I get older and my kids are growing up and I have more time to just watch and and sit back and and, and enjoy, 
I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking about, we're at the game, we finally make it there, we've had our dinner, we've, we've listened to some good podcasts, we were going through a series together on the on a, uh, intentional podcast, um, intentional fathering podcast, we're going through it and my buddy's sitting there, we're wearing our Oregon State shirts and I'm just, I got a tear coming down my eye. I'm like, I can't believe how good God is. This is just amazing. My son loves me. At least he told me he did to get to the game. I don't know. Maybe I'm the Uber. I don't care. (laughs) The Beavers are ahead of USC in the fourth quarter. This is amazing, you know. We have finances to pay the gas money at $87 a gallon. I don't care. That's great. God is good. It's the ordering of those loves, okay? Okay. So when you start to assess this, you can actually look at your life, and it's not that you'll love the pleasures of the world, like family or food. It's not that you'll love them less. You'll love them appropriately, and you'll actually love the giver of all of it more. I want you to have moments of awe and wonder at your dinner table where you just sit back and go, man, God is so good. I want that for you. It's the ordering of those loves. But listen, there's also a complexity of this command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Um, how many of you guys right now are thinking of John 3.16? Any, anyone want to rebut the Apostle John? For God so loved the... Wait a second. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the... Anyone else confused? Okay, I'm not going to answer the question, but that, I just wanted to confuse you. No, we're going to answer it, Okay. God loved the world in a specific way. Where John's going to say with do not love the world, he's going to actually give us a drop-down menu when he says do not love the world. Here's what he means. Look at verse 16. There's a specific way we're called not to love the world. For all that's in the world, he's going to point to a triad of temptations. He's going to say, the desires of the flesh, that, which is in me. Okay, he's going to start with sin as something in me. And I think we need to hear that today because we live in a world where everyone wants to say, well, it's that person's fault. No, nothing is anyone's, anyone's, anyone's fault anymore. I remember seeing that uh, McDonald's lawsuit where a guy ordered hot coffee, spilled it on himself, and got like $5 million. It's crazy. So he says, the desires of the flesh, there's something in me, there's something in you. The desires of the eyes, the eyes take in which is external, okay? And the pride of life. When he says, you do not love the world, he's not saying we shouldn't live sacrificially to love the world. He's not saying we shouldn't uh, pray for or engage with the world. He's saying we should not look at the world as a place where we use it and abuse it for me and my pleasure. I've had to learn a hard lesson the last 10 years, multiple times. And I could give you a lot of stories to illustrate this lesson. But the lesson is this. You cannot simultaneously love somebody and use them. There will be a lead impulse. And what John is saying is, 
You can't love the world the way Jesus loved the world and then use it for you and your deepest pleasures. And so what we see is this theme over and over and over again in Scripture. In the temptation accounts, Genesis chapter 3, key story in what sin is and what it means, it's actually mirrored in 2 Samuel 7 with Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba's story, where the Scriptures say that they saw it, Eve saw that the apple was good. Who was supposed to define good and evil? God. Who, who, who decided in Genesis 3? Eve. She saw it, she desired it, and she what? Took it. David saw Bathsheba bathing. He desired her. So he took her. What John is referring to in this triad of warnings is this idea that there are passions at war in every one of our hearts today. Our flesh right now, <laughs> in this moment, we, no one in this room can say, I've got 100% pure motive, my flesh, I have tamed it, it is gone, I've mortified it. No, we are at war. And there's warfare going on in us, over us, and around us. And so in this text, I want to show you this. This is really interesting. In verse 15, you're going to see this. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world, okay? Verse 16, because of the desires of the flesh. Then I want you to look at verse 14. You have overcome the evil one. Verse 18, it's in the last hours you've heard that Antichrist is coming. In this little four-verse section, you've got flesh, world, devil. You guys see that? The desires of the flesh, the way of the world, the power of the evil one. If you, if, if you need a uh, refresher here on 1 John chapter 5, 19, it's a really good passage that helps frame this up. He says this, he says, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so this warning comes in the context of John's worldview, mainly that of spiritual warfare. For all of church history until relatively recent times, the church has always thought there are three enemies of the soul. Flesh, world, devil. And we need a robust understanding of spiritual warfare. If not, we'll live like it's the eternal vacation or the eternal Sabbath. And we'll just kind of lazily roll around not realizing we're actually in a war. We're actually in a battle. And so one of my favorite books of the last year is a book from John Mark Comer. Uh, it's called Live No Lies. But I want, I want you to see his definition here of spiritual warfare because I think it really helps, gives us understanding as we think about how we interact with these things as the church. Uh, John Mark says this, he says, spiritual warfare is deceptive ideas. Did God really say? That's Satan's part. That play to my disordered desires, that's my flesh. 
that become normalized in a sinful society, world. And so when we think about the world, here's what I want to say. John says, we know that the whole world lies in the power of who? Satan. And friends, I think we need to wake up a little bit. We have become overly comfortable. This is a generalization. We've become overly comfortable with the systems, the thinkings, and the ideologies of the world. We need to wake up a little bit. The things going on that were unthinkable when I was in school that are happening in school today, we need to wake up. Cultural ideologies that are just treated as if they're fact, follow your heart, find your own identity within you, whatever that is, whatever makes you happy, you do you. Just for fun this week, I thought, I'm gonna see what uh, Google tells me about how many genders there are. I found 68, I found 78, I found 146, and one really, really um, woke company said there's infinite, so whatever. Very scientific study. Here's the problem with the ideology of the world today. It's not producing the good life. Anxiety, depression. I was just talking with a, a teacher this morning. She teaches a, a different school district. I said, what's the, what's the culture like at your school? I mean, are kids happy? She said, no, man. They're, she says, her, my, my translation of our conversation, they're kind of like zombies. They don't know who they are. They don't know why they're there. And so our moment today that we live in, if we were just to do some analysis, we've got unlimited freedom, more money, more options, no joy. And so this warning John gives us is not because John's a killjoy. In fact, if you go further down in his letter, 1 John chapter 5, I just want to show you this real quick. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now watch this. His commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments, his teaching, his warnings, they're not burdensome. They're here to produce life, and so we take hold of that which is truly life. Paul would say this, Romans 6, do you, not, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Friends, there's no such thing as freedom, the way our culture's described it. Everyone's got a master. The question is, who's your master? Is he a kind, gracious, benevolent, giving, loving father? Or is it the master of this world, Satan, who's blinded the minds of unbelievers? So John's warning comes and says, do not love the world because it's incongruent with the love of the father. It'll push out your experience of the father loving you. 
And then the, the motivation is verse 17. It's simply this. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you are loving the world, here's, here's the sad part about loving the world. As you age and as you get closer to death, at last I checked, uh, it's 100%, right? We're all gonna face that day. As you move towards death, if you love the world, you're actually moving towards loss, not gain. But if you have the love of the Father, as you age, you can do it graciously and beautifully and tenderly and kindly. And you can age with beauty and grace and you can be moving towards great gain and that can give you wisdom. It's one of the things I love about Steve and working with Steve is he's not old, but he's a little older than me. And he's aging so graciously, kindly, generously. He's not moving towards loss. He's, he knows that's a man that's moving towards his gain. It's a good model. So, got to end with the gospel. Because <laughs> I don't want this to be good advice. This is gospel news, okay? You might be here today and you're like, well, I kind of love the world. Take a number, I'm with you. Hey, there's parts of my flesh I still got to feed. I know we're all in a battle, aren't we? <laughs> there might be some of you going, like, I, I love the idea of experiencing the love of the Father, but man, there's just some, there's some stumbling blocks. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, says that he, Jesus, the Son of God, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to actually smash the serpent's head. Now, my question is, when you go back to the Gospels, where does Jesus do that? He does it at the cross, but before the cross, early on before his ministry, he receives an identity in Matthew 4 at the transfiguration, sorry, at the baptism. The Spirit says, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased, which is such an awesome thing. Jesus hadn't done anything awesome yet, and he, re he receives an identity. He receives that identity, and the Spirit immediately takes him out to go fight with Satan. Do you guys remember that? The first temptation is, you haven't ate for 40 days. Do you want some bread? That's the desire of the flesh. This test, Jesus passed it for you. Show your power. Get some angels to take care of you. That's the boastful pride of life. Satan takes over to the highest point and says, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He, he takes him right to the place of the desires of the flesh. He takes him right to the place of the desires of the eyes. And he takes him right to the place of the pride of life and the temptation account. And Jesus passes the test. Because you and I, let's be honest, We've all failed the test, right? Have you failed the test? Anybody out there? I've failed the test. So we have to receive from Christ his passing grade. And then it can motivate us because we can't work our way into favor with God. We've got to receive the love of God. 
So as we go to the communion table today, you can actually, here's the crazy cool thing. He didn't eat the bread at the temptation account. You get to eat the bread this morning. He didn't get to have the fellowship with the people. He went outside the camp by himself. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for this church family. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in people's lives. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us love. Give us wisdom, insight, and knowledge. God, how are we supposed to interact with the world? What does that look like? How do we love those around us well? God, I pray that we would love the world the way you love the world. I pray we would not take the world, use the world, try and get our pleasure from the world. God, it's in receiving the love of the Father that we have joy. So I pray this morning we'd have greater freedom, greater uh, uh, receptivity to how much you love us. Thank you, Jesus, for passing the test that we all failed this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.